Welcome back to those who have listened to previous episodes and welcome. Happy to have new listeners. Be sure to go back a few episodes and listen to those episodes so you can have additional knowledge on this topic. I have the pleasure of having Janola Morales on today to talk about her experience working as an Afro-Latinx therapist. Ms. Morales and I met on our doctorate of social work journey and being in classes with her, we are very lucky that she agreed to share her wealth of knowledge with us today. Welcome, Janola. So happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Lauren. It is my pleasure to be here. As you know as well, this topic is dear to my heart, so I am happy to share my experiences with you and the listeners. Thank you so much. So can you tell us a bit about your own cultural background? Sure. So my cultural background is very diverse. I was born in Germany because my father was in the army, but both my parents were born and raised in Panama. So they're both fluent in Spanish. So I consider myself an Afro-Latina Caribbean. So most people really don't see all three of them, but most people who came to Panama either came from Barbados or Jamaica. So there was a number of Blacks that were there. So it's just wonderful to have this diversity within my family. Yeah, I'm sure it was really exciting growing up with all those different cultures between the food and I'm guessing the music and all the traditions as a child. Exactly. It's it's amazing yeah. because you have the Caribbean side and of course you have the Latin mm-hmm. side and a lot of the fusions mixed together. So it is a wonderful mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. And what was your experience with mental health growing up? Did you talk about it? What was the discussions that were had or not had in the family? So the it's it's not really talked about much. And when I think about growing mm-hmm. up, the, the, the sense is that, you know, mental health was back then was considered for crazy people. They didn't know what they were doing. And you went to the psychiatrist and they gave you medicine. So mental health wasn't really looked at as a good profession. And because mm-hmm. of the social injustices and things of that nature, we really kept to ourselves if anything happened. And I watched my mom a lot as a, a nurse who had people who would come over. It's like she was a clinician, you know, mm-hmm. so it was amazing just to watch what happened with at the kitchen table with these conversations yeah. around food. But as a Afro-Latina Caribbean, no, you didn't take what was in your house outside your house. So really, mm-hmm. you kept a lot of secrets inside and mental health was not something that was trusted. Yeah. Wow. And that's really intense for your mom to not only have dress from her own job as a nurse, but then go home and, like you said, sort of be the clinician of her friends and family. Exactly. That's how I felt. And I saw it, but I also wanted to go in her footsteps, but the nursing part was not for me. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't do the blood. So I I went over to the social work part. Mm -hmm. And do you know what it was like for the mental health field in Panama? So really, you know, in Panama, it's it, it was no mental health, actually. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've often asked that as I grow up and I went back and yeah. talked about social services and things of that nature. There was mm-hmm. none. There was no social services. Wow. There was no social work. It was really just as I said, people were friends to each other and helped each other through mm-hmm. whatever situation. And even in Panama, unlike America, they had, you know, the Afro-Latinas on one side and um the Mm -hmm. others on another side. So you kind of had to fend for yourself and have your own community in terms of strengthening yourselves as you were going through Mm -hmm. things. 
Yeah. And did you live there as a child or it was all in Germany and then the U.S.? So I didn't live there, but we went there every summer for okay. uh, my grandmother and my cousins and everybody lived there. My mom and my dad were really mm-hmm. the only ones who ventured out of Panama. Once mm-hmm. I left Germany, we stayed within the States. Okay. Now, can you tell us a bit about your professional background? So my professional background was steamed from my own personal situation as a child. Mm-hmm. I was uh, molested by, by a person at 12. And I didn't receive the proper treatment that I should have. Mm -hmm. The police didn't even speak to me. They spoke to my parents. You know, there were no social worker to talk to. There was nothing of that Mm -hmm. nature. So I always wanted to be in the helping field. So when I went to college and I became a resident assistant, I was like, I like this. So as I graduated, I first had my first job in foster care. I didn't like all what we saw. And I didn't like the diagnoses Mm -hmm. of children and the pulling a part of the culture. So from foster care, went into care because I felt there had to be something that could be done before Mm -hmm. children hit foster care and be pulled apart from their families. And you can see the inequities and the level of Latins in foster care. And I did the foster care in New York as well. So I went back and I got, yeah, I got my master's. Very busy. Very, very, very oh busy. Gosh. And and a lot of that had to do with culture and not understanding mm-hmm. culture and not understanding that because you come from another country where you use, you know, herbs and things like that if your child got hurt or, you know, they use medicinal mm-hmm. per- things. But, you know, in America, yeah. it's like, go to a doctor. You have to go to a doctor. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of cultural shock for a lot of parents. And I was like, but you guys yeah. aren't really understanding these mm-hmm. these parents you're not even hearing what they're saying it's not like they were trying to purposely hurt their children by um one of the ones i think of is putting toothpaste uh on a little burn you know so someone had yeah. a child for that i'm like well if you come from one of the other countries that's normal so yeah i decided to go get my masters and i was like cuz i need to be on the other side of this table to be mm-hmm. able to be an ally to my own people So I did that. Mm -hmm. And once I graduated, um, I worked in uh, daycares. It was it was amazing opportunity. It was a project Mm -hmm. of in terms of having social workers in daycares because of the child abuse maltreatment level that was high. So they figured if you started at the early age of educating them, then that would work. So we had Mm -hmm. 21 daycares under us. And then from there, I made the crazy jump. (laughs) <laughs> to child welfare. <laughs> Woo! Uh, so I decided to go to child protection and work mm-hmm. in child protection where they talk about self-care. Anyone working mm-hmm. with child welfare really needs self-care. So I stayed mm-hmm. there for like 13 years. I wow, was, uh, that's a long yeah. time <laughs> it was so for long. the burnout rate Excellent. for that particular area. Exactly. It felt more like 31 years. And I will say, you know, you do have compassion fatigue, you do get burnt out. And Mm -hmm. I felt myself getting there. So, you know, when there was a change in administration, and they were changing things, I decided I was going to now go Mm -hmm. to adult protection, thinking it was Mm -hmm. much better than child protection. (laughs) Somebody should have pre-warned me (laughs) that. And how long did you stay there? Well, child protection, I did maybe 10 years. I mean, adult protection, I did 10 years. Yeah, adult protection was 10 years. Child protection was 13, you know, and there, then again, you know, not being able to help 
adults because if they have capacity, they're allowed to have self-determination and make bad decisions. If, yeah. if so, so I did that for a long time and I was like, ah, this is this is this is just as bad as child protection. <laughs> so I literally oh. had an opportunity, which was wonderful, to work with the CDC when Ebola was out. Oh wow. So, yeah. So that was an amazing opportunity that, you know, that they had social workers at the uh, airports, which was amazing at the international airports. And we worked alongside mm-hmm. of doctors and stuff as those who were affected in other countries. So that was such an amazing opportunity to be able to work with that group and the CDC. And from there mm-hmm. on, I just became went back into case management. So one of the things I did do, though, was because of all the burnout, I kind of early on when I had my CSW, I did do my macro, mm-hmm. but then I was like, I like, I like clinic, clinic work, but at the end of the day, mm-hmm. I was burnt out. So I went to mezzo and all of the other things. So I stay more in the administration side now. And mm-hmm. if anything I do, I will do workshops and life coaching and things of that nature and really refer people out because yeah. I understand self-care is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's good that you recognize that because I feel like a lot of people do stay in and try to push through, but then the work, you end up not doing good work. And you can sense when that starts to happen. And like you said, you start to get so burnt out and compassion fatigue, you don't want to force those that empathy for those that you're working with. So it's really important to have that, that self reflection and be able to know when it's time to move on. Exactly. It really is. And and here and now we've left uh, New York. My husband uh, retired and he said, let's go to sunny Florida, <laughs> which uh-huh. is the whole different experience being here because you really do see the uh, social injustices up close and personal here in Florida because the policies that are here are not for people of color, um, black and brown people. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm kind of disappointed in our own discipline because they're not as yeah. strong activists as they would be in the North in terms of fighting for policies yeah. and change. So I know once we finish this wonderful program, that is my focus is to be an mm-hmm. ally for black and brown people and really begin to look at policies for change to make sure that mm-hmm. um, there's equity in services. Yeah, we definitely need more social workers in the policy sector for that exact reason, because there's so much that needs improvement in the, in the states. Exactly. And, and now we have this issue within Florida where they don't want to teach CRT or uh, intersectionality. So mm-hmm. I'm real concerned about how, is, how are those who are graduating or those in school even going to understand the perspective mm-hmm. of different cultures, different background different ethnicities. So that's that is a great going totally the opposite direction. Totally. So it's, it's, can I bring my culture to my uh, therapist? If I was going into therapy, would I be able to bring my perspective and they would even understand our perspectives. But at this point, if they take it out of school, then no. Um, so we're going back to what used to be when there was no voice in the room. Now, backtracking a little bit about what you said I've always been interested in life coaches and I've done some research myself, but it felt a little bit overwhelming just because I didn't know much about it. And I'm not even sure how people find one. Can you tell us a bit more about how you got into life coaching? What was the, was there any particular training you did and how, how people find you if they want you to be their life coach? 
So basically, I took our social work training. Technically, right now, a lot of people who say they are trained as life coaches, there is no real um, d- degree for it or anything like that. There's mm-hmm. certifications of it. But because I believe we are really trained to deal with trauma and things of that nature, mm-hmm. I switched over from wanting to do diagnoses and things of that nature to moving over to just life coaching. And as I said before, if people uh, found that they were in that type of crisis where I felt that they needed to do a one-on-one with psychotherapy, then I refer them out. So they clearly understand when they come to me that we're working on uh, situations that don't rise to the level where they're having some form of an episode or something of that nature. And really what I did was uh, I closed it down now, but I'm being asked to open it back up. I had actually just formed um, an LLC and put some different workshops out there, put what we can do I did say that I am a social worker, but we don't, I don't do psychotherapy. This is life coaching. So I've had a number of people for losing weight, you know, building their self-esteem, career, um, education, things like that. And, and you know, even some people just um, wanting to improve on themselves. And I did a lot of workshops and trainings as well. So really, it becomes a word of mouth. So even that became a little overwhelming. I had so many clients. I was like, okay, I do have a nine to five. So it's kind of hard to do the nine to five and turn around um, and run home and then have all these clients. But it was a, it's a wonderful experience. Yeah. But it is a wonderful experience to be on that journey with someone as they are having a breakthrough or, you know, starting to understand things in their lives. And they love the perspective that as social workers, we have that perspective and, and that skill set. Right. You're, you're, it sounds like you really use a, a strength-based perspective with those people that you work with and bring, bring in a lot of what we learn in, in the social work field. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also wonderful because, you know, sometimes people do want to go to counseling, but they really don't understand our theoretical backgrounds and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So even in that life coaching to get somebody to get to the point where they're comfortable to go actually Mm -hmm. to counseling. So I've coached people to actually go into counseling and explain our discipline, our background, our training and matching yourself with someone that understands you and your perspective that every therapist does not match every client and that you have a right to continue to look until you actually match with that individual. Yeah. And I feel like that's something a lot of people don't know. So that's great that you were able to provide that, that knowledge to so many people that you were working with. It was amazing. It really was. And and I love it. And to this day, they're all, we still kind of touch base just to see where they are in their journey. And it's amazing Mm -hmm. to see. That's wonderful. Now, what are some of the most important aspects to be aware of when working with the Latinx community, in your opinion, and that you've seen? I mostly go back when I think about it is one or two is, is, is when either working with a family or working now with seniors. And one of the things I often say to the individual is the power of the story and understanding the background, understanding the culture, understanding the, that the individual has. And that transcends to all cultures. But I think if you're American-born, American-bred, you really don't understand a lot of the traditions that may come from other countries, from Puerto Rico, Cuba, and mm-hmm. things of that nature. And they take for granted that, you know, some of the traditions, because America has labeled them as evil. So, you know, just speaking to some people, you know, some clients, they're into Santeria. And if you say that, Mm -hmm. 
they, they lose it. They're like, oh my God, isn't that that thing with witchcraft? And I'm like, but that's someone's mm-hmm. belief. That's what they were raised yeah. on. So at that point, you need to understand the culture and what that means to them if you are going to be their therapist and not uh, sit there and put judgment on what someone is believing. Same thing with culture, same thing with food, same thing with un- by language. And the one thing I always remind every single person, if you go to a Latin person's house, we go feed you and, and we get yeah. upset. And you can't you, say no. <laughs> exactly. If you say no, we're offended. So, you know, um, and you have to know that about us because if you're trying to engage yeah. a client the first time you're meeting them and they say, would you like some water? Or would you like some coffee? For you to just sternly say no, you, you've kind of kind of closed the door and, you know, you may not get what you want, but simply saying, you know, I'm yes, or I just ate opens the door a little more. So you got to understand the culture and and the right. dress and how the females roles are and the male roles are and things of that nature and i think that's really hard for a lot of people to understand the differences in in how we move as latinas and latinos and latinx people so i think they have to understand the country and not all of us are the same so as mm-hmm. an afro latina i have different perspectives than someone who doesn't have the black side they need to really understand who they're working with and what are my experiences? What is the person's background? Right. Yeah. South America, different from Central America, different Mm -hmm. from the Caribbean. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it's something that people really need to look into. And I think sometimes we in America have this thing of throwing everybody into one pot and saying, oh, no, you're all the same. You're all you're all Latin. You're all Hispanic. And it's like, mm mm. It'll shock you how different everyone can be from the foods to the actual pronunciation of words or the meanings of words. Yes, the meanings, the the slang. Yes, yes, yes. And that's one of the things I love currently where I work. It it is a real diverse organization. We're 95% Latinx. So you have Cuba, you have Panama, you have Puerto Rico. Dominican Republic, you name it. It's all there. It's all there. It's all there. So we have so much fun sometimes just talking about the foods and whether they are similar or different. The words and what one word means to somebody else may be an (laughs) insult to someone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, A swear word. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So we've had those moments where we're like, ah, you can't say that. That's a swear in her country. And they're like, oh my gosh. So um, (laughs) even, you know, so people really need to understand that there's a difference and that you, you need to take the time to understand, ask questions. Don't be frightened to ask the person a question. That to me is the best thing you can do versus assuming or trying to go get the information from someone else. Because even right. though you could been you could have been born in Panama and I could have been born in Panama, but our experiences would have been different. So intersectionality, maybe. I mean, if we're from yes. the same country, but if we're from a different socioeconomic Correct. status. That's going to greatly gonna... differentiate our <laughs> yes. experiences. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and I don't think a lot of people look at that. And I remember it's so funny. Like when I was in high school, there was a young lady who had just come from Panama and they were trying to get her to pick a race. And because Panama is, you're just Panamanian. You're not, you don't have a race. Right. You know, she couldn't really understand this race thing. And they were like, well, you're black. And she's like, no, I'm not. I'm Panamanian. And they're like, that's not a race. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I felt the like, same way. <laughs> yeah. Because in our country, we just say we're 
Chilean. We're, I'm from Chile. I'm Chilena. Not right. we don't say really Hispana or we didn't even say Latina. We just said, well, I'm from Chile. Exactly. That's my my everything, my ethnicity, my culture, <laughs> my race. Right. So you come to America and they're trying to get you to pick a or b but it's like yeah. no where we come from it's just we're panamanian and that's it there's nothing else to it you know there's no other box to check i think that's hard for a lot of clinicians to understand and i think sometimes they make the assumption that the person doesn't want to identify with their race which is wrong it's just mm-hmm. where they come from race is not constructed like it is here so i think you really have to look at the person's background and as you mm-hmm. said you know socioeconomics where are they from and how was their experiences before we we make judgments on diagnoses or anything of that nature yeah and i want to go back to something that you said when you said don't be afraid to ask the client questions and i agree with that but where is the line of when clinicians, practitioners expect the client to be the educator of their culture and are relying on the client to learn about their culture. I think that just hit me because that happened to me uh, Mm -hmm. literally because I had to, when I went for postgraduate and I went into Gestalt, Mm -hmm. I believe my therapist was asking me more intimate questions to really understand my race and my culture. Mm -hmm. Whereas I felt at that point, you need to get your education or you need to do your own deep dive to understand the issues, the social injustices and inequities that was faced and why I may feel the way I feel or how I've come from where I've come from. So I think there is definitely a line when you Mm -hmm. move from just genuinely asking how do you like yourself? I think we stay surface. You could tell me a little bit about yourself of that nature, getting to know your client and not trying to get your client to be the entire culture because everyone right. is different in the culture. Mm-hmm. So when you start digging, well, then why do you people do that? And why do you, and how do you know you've passed yeah. the line and you're now mm-hmm. asking them to be accountable for everybody. And that to me is not something that we should do to anybody. Everybody should be treated with dignity and respect. And I can only mm-hmm. give you my perspective from my life. I can't give you perspectives of the whole entire race. So we yeah. have to be very careful not to offend and not to expect Mm -hmm. a person to be the one who can tell you everything about that race. Yeah. And I love the way that you explained that because I think that that's a really easy way to understand that line because sometimes it could be a fine line for somebody that has no idea who they're seeing about their culture and their background. So differentiating it by asking them about themselves as the individual rather than asking them, like you said, you people, your culture, why do do your people do that? I think that that's a really good way to differentiate between the two. I think one thing that our profession has taught me over the years, and I have been a social worker for 40 uh, years, is to simplify it. I think we we learn our theories, we learn our perspectives, we, we know when we're talking to each other, we can use the verbiage that we understand. But when we start speaking with our clients or the community, I believe we should actually simplify our language and take our social work jargon out because you lose people that way. Yeah. Because 
it doesn't yeah. mean anything to them. It only means it to mm -hmm. us as a profession. So as right. simple as you can be, it's not insulting, but to ensure that you're actually making this conversation personable, mm -hmm. I think people appreciate that that I, you're yeah. here, you're here with me and you're, you're trying to connect with me uh -huh. on a level that you can understand my perspective. I don't know too many people who wouldn't appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Now you said your agency is 95% Latinx. How yes. does your agency prepare all the practitioners there in terms of cultural competency? So we are... <laughs> Currently, that's my thing that I'm working on. The agency mm -hmm. grew from a mom and pop and it grew overnight over the last few years. COVID really oh, threw wow. us out there mm -hmm. to the community because we are the only social service agency. So I am also training our staff because I believe our mm -hmm. staff hasn't isn't really prepared for the influx that has happened in Florida. Number one, mm -hmm. culturally, they themselves are getting comfortable understanding mm -hmm. each other and each other's differences. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, I couldn't believe that we were having our own, you know, um, struggles in-house between the different countries, but we were. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, we were having a struggle at one point. And even our clients mm, mm -hmm. uh, were like, I don't want a Cuban. I don't want someone from DR. I don't, mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, we don't do that. We, you oh, have wow. to, yeah. So it's become, people become very particular on what they want and, and thinking they mm -hmm. have a right to ask for it. So I'm in the point of us having real conversations about race, racism, unconscious mm -hmm. biases. Where did you get your information from regarding this particular country? Um, so we've had a lot of things where people now are interacting and speaking so that they can become culturally competent in terms of mm -hmm. having real dialogue with one another. Um, so we do a lot of groups with each other to have these conversations because at one point, again, as I, it was like a fire, I was like, what is going on? <laughs> what is happening? Oh my gosh. Um, I was like, I, I didn't know that it was this uh, serious among, mm -hmm. you know, the Latin countries, but it was, you know, but it's also yeah. to me propaganda of what you mm -hmm. hear and and then the power analysis as well mm -hmm. of which country of out of the latin countries is higher than the others so yeah. you know we, we who's still, doing better <laughs> i had to really say to them one day think about it you're all here so mm -hmm. we're all at the same place at the same time so you really don't have power one over the other we're all at the same place at the same time so you you really shouldn't judge so we had that deep conversation of that's actually true no one i am the highest one there i'm the chief of staff so mm -hmm. i'm like all of you are workers so no one is better than each other and what makes you feel that you're better or your country's better yeah. in someone else's country you know and they really it was fun after a while they really got deep down and started talking mm -hmm. about the poverty and the the different types of unconscious biases that they've heard from their parents their grandparents you know it's not something they've yeah. experienced it's something that was just passed down in the generations in terms of we are better than that country that country mm -hmm. doesn't yeah. have any and the history yes of maybe yeah. wars and yes who yes took whose land who took exactly. whose access to the 
water. <laughs> yes. So that is still, but as, as, as clinicians, I said, this is our unconscious bias that we have to address. We have to bring it in the room and we have to talk about it because how can you speak to a client if you yourself haven't addressed your own unconscious bias? And so we've talked about it and we're continuing to talk about it. So I'm actually doing supervisory training too for the leaders in the organization because they themselves don't know how to address all what we've been learning in our DSW program, you know. So I've been sharing mm-hmm. some of our uh, materials with them in terms of race, racism, CRT, inter- uh, intersectionality, and how that plays into people's lives, um, and that it's not an excuse, that it is true, and that race is a social construct. Yeah. So all of that, so that they can really get a clarity mm-hmm. and understanding, because we all know, we all said when we graduated, a lot of us didn't have this information that is now being yeah. given to us. So mm-hmm. I'm sharing the wealth with my team. Yeah, it sounds like uh, the main piece is the knowledge. Yes. Disseminating yes. that knowledge so that they're aware. Exactly. What are some of the major changes that you see need to happen in order to start removing and dismantling all these barriers that the Latinx community has? in terms of their ability to obtain mental health services? Well, it's the mistrust outside of the community. And if I just focus in on where I am right now, as I said, the job is 95%, but also the community is probably about 85%. There's a large Latin population now here in Osceola County, where I am in Florida. So I don't see a lot of clinicians of diversity yet. So people will not go to them because it's outside of one, their culture or their race or the language barrier. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, so at this point, it's it's trying to formulate something in terms of allowing them to have the services that they need where they feel comfortable mm-hmm. within their community. So one of the things that I'm looking at is maybe speaking to the faith-based organizations and how can they partner with an organization to be able to have the services where they feel comfortable. So there's some barriers that we have to break. We have to break the stereotypes. And one of the things I feel we really have to break is get a voice, is get a voice. I'm not sure if it's just the culture of, of, of here or people are afraid that they may be deported or people maybe feel whatever the issue is, is they're not vocal. Yeah. They're not mm-hmm. vocal at all here. And and some people are here as a citizen, but they still are not vocal. And I'm like, in order for things to change, we have to begin to change the policies, the procedures. Your voice has to be heard. You have to go to rallies. You have to be seen. Mm-hmm. And that's probably some of the most difficulty here is that they don't want to stir up anything. It's just like, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. And I think that's part of the culture too. Correct. And yes. it, it could be aside from fear, but just not wanting to stir the pot. Exactly. Exactly. Especially with my seniors, we often make the joke about Florida is supposed to be the senior state before you get to the gate, but it is not, yeah. it, it is not, you know, senior friendly, like most people think. And mm-hmm. I'm like, we're not really going to get change unless you join us in this and letting your voice be known that Medicaid to get on the Medicaid wait is probably 3000 to 5000 people before they can get on and a lot of people pass before they can get any services. Wow. Yeah. Have see- seniors right now sleeping in their cars. It's a tremendous devastation to watch. And we try to encourage them. So some yeah, of the things that's our role. 
yeah, that's all we can do. And, you know, and try to empower them and, and let them know that they do have a voice and that we will stand with them. So we actually, you know, visit the senior centers and try to empower them and try to rally them, invite the mayors, the commissioners to the organization, because we have the seniors there who come for what we call congregate care, but it's really like a senior center and let them hear them and let them hear their voices. And so our organization also has recently um, received funding to build affordable housings for seniors, which is amazing um, because that is well needed. So we're yeah. their advocates, we're their allies. And mm-hmm. I just feel that social workers in Florida need to lift up their voices. We can't get the degrees and then just stay silent, go into jobs and not say it, or we won't Mm -hmm. have a change. Yeah. Our profession is much bigger than, than just the clinical practice. Exactly. It's something we all really have to, I know in this climate, I, I feel it and I understand in this climate, you second guess sometimes, even though we know our profession is an advocate, is an ally, but the climate with with mm-hmm. individuals who are so destructive. I, I see some social workers think, I'm not sure I want to put my neck out there on how mm-hmm. these individuals are harming people. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a decision that we have to decide how we're going to be in our profession. Right. Now, have you had any personal experiences with mental health services as an Afro-Latina? So as I said before, it was uh, maybe, I think we had to do it for two years. Not me personally going because I also had just like our culture. It's like, I'm not going to one of those people, <laughs> you know, even though I was in the profession, I just, yeah. just, just you're like, I don't need it. <laughs> yeah. I don't need it and I don't want it. And, and I'm not going, but when I decided to go to the Gestalt Center for Psychotherapy, um, it was a requirement that you had to have a therapist and the first therapist did not understand me, did not understand our our culture, did not understand that we respect our parents irregardless of conflictual relation um, because in gestalt therapy, they have something called the empty chair. And she was like, oh, well, you could put your mom in the chair. She was a white therapist. You could put your mom in the chair and you could kick her. You could shoot her. You can, I'm like, uh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Well, that's what yeah. they did. I was like, absolutely not. I said, pretend or not. We respect our parents. We do not do something like that. And she thought that I was, you know, not having a breakthrough and I was being difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, absolutely not. You need to understand our culture and how we reverence mm-hmm. our parents. I said, you know, so that's not, and I said, and also we have a fear of our parents that it, <laughs> that they yeah. put in us from young that we just don't do those things. So I'm I changed. not trying to go to hell here. <laughs> there you go. Over therapy. You know, and I'm like, pretend or not, I have to put a thought in my mind to be able to do that. And she's done nothing. Of course, as a young adult, you always have some challenges with your mom. But I said, there's no reason for me to put her in a chair and kick the chair over or kick her. I said, absolutely not. I said, I can say, scream and yell and say, my, you weren't fair over that situation. But what you're asking me is something you would do or Mm -hmm. you're comfortable doing because your race does scream and yell at your mom and cuss them out, but ours Mm -hmm. does not. It's from what I've seen. So, you know, she didn't really want to work with me because she thought I was not forthcoming. You're being difficult. Very difficult client. Mm -hmm. So I spoke to the people at the center and I was like, no, absolutely not. You guys need education on different cultures and what we will and will not do. And really ask the client isn't it my right to refuse to do a certain exercise? 
Right. Or have you never not had someone refuse to do one of your exercises? So it wasn't really well received, but then you still had to go through therapy. So I did find a good therapist who did understand me as an Afro-Latino. So she understood that I had the Caribbean side and that I had the Latin side and that, you know, at times they meshed over, but at times I clearly was more on my Latin side because, you know, that's mm-hmm. just sometimes where I felt comfortable um, being with yeah. my Latin side. So she understood that as well. And not that I was denouncing my Black side. It's just sometimes I felt more comfortable hanging out with all Latins. So she right. understood it. And we had a good mm-hmm. conversation, good understanding. We worked through a lot of things that I didn't know that I needed <laughs> to work through. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I really appreciated her as a therapist, taking all my intersectionalities and working with me at my pace and not how thought I should be working through. So that was an amazing experience. And I think at that point, she actually did a turn for me in terms of, you know what, that Mm -hmm. experience alone allowed me to talk to others in terms of it's not bad, (laughs) you know, Yeah. and actually you work through some things you didn't know that you had. So I became an advocate again, all over for our profession, but Mm -hmm. on a personal level in terms of find the therapist who connects with you and works for you. And that's why I'm very big on that because of that first therapist and not Mm -hmm. connecting well with me, not respecting my culture or respecting that I did not want to do an exercise that I felt would have been harmful to my well-being. It's great that, that you were able to advocate for yourself and speak up for yourself but there's so many people that are fearful of doing that or don't feel comfortable. So that's why it's important as a therapist to check in with our clients and make sure, are you okay to go forward? Are you comfortable with this? You know, I do EMDR, which is a trauma therapy and Uh we are doing constant check-ins because people can become dysregulated. They can feel comfortable and they might not be in a space to speak up for themselves in that moment. So it's it's important with whatever treatment modality that you choose to do, check in throughout the process. That's wonderful. And it's very dangerous with our profession because it's you and the client, mm-hmm. you know, and as you said, they can become dysregulated. And if you're not paying attention, you've just sent this person off in death layer to know God knows what. So I think really we do always, always need to do check-ins constantly to make sure that we are doing no harm. Right. Now, what would be the last piece of knowledge or just a short nugget that you would give to clinicians, practitioners that are working with the Latinx community? I guess I always think it's, well, it's me, it's fun, is to immerse yourself in in the community for a a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you're going to work with a specific culture, I don't think reading about it all the time is going to, you're not going to obtain what you're really looking for. So, and sometimes we just have to immerse ourselves in either going to a restaurant, which is all there, mariachi band, and you know, Mm -hmm. really immersing yourself in it for a a couple of evenings just to observe and become a part and see if you have any unconscious biases. What did you expect? Did you, were you surprised by anything that you saw or what you felt? Because Mm -hmm. I don't think if we don't actually come face to face with some Mm -hmm. of the things that we are conflicted with, 
then we will never be able to go through the process to be able to address it. And I think sometimes as clinicians, we think we have it all together until that unconscious bias comes up. So sometimes I think just making little trips, if your circle is all just you and your friends all look alike, all look the same, all speak the same, then pretty much you need to come out of your circle if you're going to work with Latinx. Because at the end of the day, you need to understand the culture. And as we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier, it can't be put on your client. You yourself need to have some understanding about the culture itself and how it works in different countries so that you can be prepared to work with your client authentically and not from a TV show or what somebody told you, but what you have to some level experience. Yeah, I love that. That's that's great advice. And I love the way that you put that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I think we had a really wonderful discussion and I think it's gonna be extremely helpful to those listening on really how to start and how to better serve this this community and really take responsibility, like you said before, starting to work with them. Thank you for having me. It was an amazing conversation. Thank you. If you are experiencing an immediate crisis, please call 911. If you or a loved one are feeling suicidal, please call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. The previous lifeline number, 1-800-273-8255, is also available to people in emotional distress or suicidal crisis. SAMHSA also has a free confidential 24-7 treatment referral and information service line in English and Spanish, and that number is 1-800-662-4357.